Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This is our eighth installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 17 through 20 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. Also, consider leaving a review if you're enjoying this reading. As a heads up to listeners, this episode does include two instances of the N-word, both of which occur in chapter 18. We have censored that word in our reading, and you will hear a beep when it occurs. Lauren joined us in installment four to have a conversation about our decision to censor the word, and there are several articles listed in the show notes for that episode that address some aspects of that word in literature, culture, and the classroom to provide you with further reading on the topic. She joins us again today with an article recommendation about the use of maps in Conrad's writing. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this eighth installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 17 He came in at last, but I believe it was mostly the rain that did it. It was falling just then with a devastating violence which quieted down gradually while we talked. His manner was very sober and set. His bearing was that of a naturally taciturn man possessed by an idea. My talk was of the material aspect of his position. It had the sole aim of saving him from the degradation, ruin, and despair that out there close so swiftly upon a friendless, homeless man. I pleaded with him to accept my help. I argued reasonably. And every time I looked up at that absorbed, smooth face, so grave and youthful, I had a disturbing sense of being no help, but rather an obstacle to some mysterious, inexplicable, impalpable striving of his wounded spirit. I suppose you intend to eat and drink and to sleep under shelter in the usual way, I remember saying with irritation. You say you won't touch the money that is due you. He came as near as his sort can to making a gesture of horror. There were three weeks and five days' pay owing him as mate of the Patna. Well, that's too little to matter anyhow. But what will you do tomorrow? Where will you turn? You must live. That isn't the thing, was the comment that escaped him under his breath. I ignored it and went on combating what I assumed to be the scruples of an exaggerated delicacy. On every conceivable ground, I concluded, you must let me help you. You can't, he said very simply and gently, and holding fast to some deep idea which I could detect shimmering like a pool of water in the dark but which I despaired of ever approaching near enough to fathom. I surveyed his well-proportioned bulk. At any rate, I said, I am able to help what I can see of you. I don't pretend to do more. He shook his head skeptically without looking at me. I got very warm. But I can, I insisted. I can do even more. I am doing more. I am trusting you. The money, he began, "'Upon my word, you deserve being told to go to the devil,' I cried, forcing the note of indignation. He was startled, smiled, and I pressed my attack home. "'It isn't a question of money at all. You are too superficial,' I said. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, "'Well, here goes, and perhaps he is, after all.' "'Look at the letter I want you to take. 
I am writing to a man of whom I've never asked a favor, and I am writing about you in terms that one only ventures to use when speaking of an intimate friend. I make myself unreservedly responsible for you. That's what I'm doing. And really, if you will only reflect a little what that means. He lifted his head. The rain had passed away. Only the water pipe went on shedding tears with an absurd drip, drip outside the window. It was very quiet in the room, whose shadows huddled together in corners, away from the still flame of the candle flaring upright in the shape of a dagger. His face, after a while, seemed suffused by a reflection of a soft light, as if the dawn had broken already. "'Jove!' he gasped out. "'It is noble of you.' Had he suddenly put out his tongue at me in derision, I could not have felt more humiliated. I thought to myself, "'Serve me right for a sneaking humbug.' His eyes shone straight into my face, but I perceived it was not a mocking brightness. All at once he sprang into jerky agitation, like one of those flat wooden figures that are worked by a string. His arms went up, then came down with a slap. He became another man altogether. "'And I had never seen!' he shouted, then suddenly bit his lip and frowned. "'What a bolly ass I've been!' he said very slow and in an awed tone. "'You are a brick!' he cried next in a muffled voice. He snatched my hand as though he had just seen it for the first time and dropped it at once. "'Why, this is what I—you—I—' he stammered, and then, with a return of his old, stolid, I may say mulish manner, he began heavily, "'I would be a brute now if I—' and then his voice seemed to break. "'That's all right,' I said. I was almost alarmed by this display of feeling, through which pierced a strange elation— I had pulled the string accidentally, as it were. I did not fully understand the working of the toy. "'I must go now,' he said. "'Jove, you have helped me. Can't sit still. The very thing.' He looked at me with puzzled admiration. "'The very thing!' Of course it was the thing. It was ten to one that I had saved him from starvation, of that peculiar sort that is almost invariably associated with drink. This was all. I had not a single illusion on that score, but looking at him— I allowed myself to wonder at the nature of the one he had, within the last three minutes, so evidently taken into his bosom. I had forced into his head the means to carry on decently the serious business of life, to get food, drink, and shelter of the customary kind, while his wounded spirit, like a bird with a broken wing, might hop and flutter into some hole to die quietly of inanition there. This is what I had thrust upon him, a definitely small thing, and behold, by the manner of its reception, it loomed in the dim light of the candle like a big, indistinct, perhaps a dangerous shadow. "'You don't mind me not saying anything appropriate,' he burst out. "'There isn't anything one could say. Last night already you had done me no end of good, listening to me, you know? I give you my word, I've thought more than once the top of my head would fly off.' He darted, positively darted, here and there, rammed his hands into his pockets, jerked them out again, flung his cap on his head. I had no idea it was in him to be so airily brisk. I thought of a dry leaf imprisoned on an eddy of wind, while a mysterious apprehension, a load of indefinite doubt, weighed me down in my chair. He stood stock still, as if struck motionless by a discovery. "'You have given me confidence,' he declared soberly. "'Oh, for God's sake, my dear fellow, don't,' I entreated, as though he had hurt me. All right, I'll shut up now and henceforth. Can't prevent me thinking, though. Never mind, I'll show yet. 
He went to the door in a hurry, paused with his head down, and came back, stepping deliberately. I always thought that if a fellow could begin with a clean slate, and now you, in a measure, yes, clean slate. I waved my hand and he marched out without looking back. The sound of his footfalls died out gradually behind the closed door, the unhesitating tread of a man walking in broad daylight. But as to me, left alone with the solitary candle, I remained strangely unenlightened. I was no longer young enough to behold at every turn the magnificence that besets our insignificant footsteps in good and in evil. I smiled to think that, after all, it was yet he, of us two, who had the light, and I felt sad. A clean slate, did he say? As if the initial word of each our destiny were not graven in imperishable characters upon the face of a rock. Chapter 18 Six months afterwards, my friend, he was cynical more than middle-aged bachelor with a reputation for eccentricity and owned a rice mill, wrote to me, and judging from the warmth of my recommendation that I would like to hear enlarged a little upon Jim's perfections. These were apparently of a quiet and effective sort. Not having been able so far to find more in my heart than a resigned toleration for any individual of my kind, I have lived till now alone in a house that even in this steaming climate would be considered as too big for one man. I have had him to live with me for some time past. It seems I haven't made a mistake. It seemed to me, on reading this letter, that my friend had found in his heart more than tolerance for Jim, that there were the beginnings of active liking. Of course, he stated his grounds in a characteristic way. For one thing, Jim kept his freshness in the climate. Had he been a girl, my friend wrote, one could have said he was blooming, blooming modestly, like a violet, not like some of those blatant tropical flowers. He had been in the house for six weeks, and had not as yet attempted to slap him on the back or address him as old boy, or try to make him feel a superannuated fossil. He had nothing of the exasperating young man's chatter. He was good-tempered, had not much to say for himself, was not clever by any means, thank goodness, wrote my friend. It appeared, however, that Jim was clever enough to be quietly appreciative of his wit, while on the other hand, he amused him by his naiveness. The dew is yet on him, and since I had the bright idea of giving him a room in the house and having him at meals, I feel less withered myself. The other day, he took it into his head to cross the room with no other purpose but to open a door for me, and I felt more in touch with mankind than I had been for years. Ridiculous, isn't it? Of course, I guess there is something, some awful little scrape, which you know all about, but if I am sure that is terribly heinous, I fancy one could manage to forgive it. For my part, I declare I am unable to imagine him guilty of anything much worse than robbing an orchard. Is it much worse? Perhaps you ought to have told me. But it is such a long time since we both turned saints that you may have forgotten we too had sinned in our time. It may be that some day I shall have to ask you, and then I shall expect to be told. I don't care to question him myself till I have some idea what it is. Moreover, it's too soon as yet. Let him open the door a few times more for me. Thus, my friend, I was triply pleased. At Jim shaping so well, at the tone of the letter, at my own cleverness. Evidently, I had known what I was doing. I had read characters aright, and so on. And what if something unexpected and wonderful were to come of it? That evening, reposing in a deck chair under the shade of my own poop awning, it was in Hong Kong Harbor, 
I laid on Jim's behalf the first stone of a castle in Spain. I made a trip to the northward, and when I returned I found another letter from my friend waiting for me. It was the first envelope I tore open. There are no spoons missing as far as I know, ran the first line. I haven't been interested enough to inquire. He is gone, leaving on the breakfast table a formal little note of apology, which is either silly or heartless, probably both, and it's all one to me. Allow me to say, lest you should have some more mysterious young men in reserve, that I have shut up shop, definitely and forever. This is the last eccentricity I shall be guilty of. Do not imagine for a moment that I care a hang, but he is very much regretted at tennis parties, and for my own sake I've told a plausible lie at the club. I flung the letter aside and started looking through the batch on my table till I came upon Jim's handwriting. Would you believe it? One chance in a hundred. But it is always that hundredth chance. That little second engineer of the Patna had turned up in a more or less destitute state and got a temporary job of looking after the machinery of the mill. I couldn't stand the familiarity of the little beast, Jim wrote from a seaport 700 miles south of the place where he should have been in Clover. I am now for the time with Eggstrom and Blake, ship chandlers, as their, well, runner, to call the thing by its right name. For reference, I gave them your name, which they know, of course, and if you could write a word in my favor, it would be a permanent employment. I was utterly crushed under the ruins of my castle, but of course I wrote as desired. Before the end of the year, my new charter took me that way, and I had an opportunity of seeing him. He was still with Eggstrom and Blake, and we met in what they called our parlor, opening out of the store. He had that moment come in from boarding a ship, and confronted me head down, ready for a tussle. What have you got to say for yourself? I began as soon as we had shaken hands. What I wrote you, nothing more, he said stubbornly. Did the fellow blab, or what? He looked up at me with a troubled smile. Oh no, he didn't. He made it a kind of confidential business between us. He was most damnably mysterious whenever I came over to the mill. He would wink at me in a respectful manner, as much as to say, We know what we know, infernally fawning and familiar, and that sort of thing. He threw himself into a chair and stared down his legs. One day we happened to be alone, and the fellow had the cheek to say, Well, Mr. James, I was called Mr. James there as if I had been the son. Here we are together once more. This is better than the old ship, ain't it? Wasn't it appalling, eh? I looked at him, and he put on a knowing air. Don't you be uneasy, sir, he says. I know a gentleman when I see one, and I know how a gentleman feels. I hope, though, you will be keeping me on this job. I had a hard time of it, too, along of that rotten old Patna racket. Jove, it was awful. I don't know what I should have said or done if I had not just then heard Mr. Denver calling me in the passage. It was tiffin time, and we walked together across the yard and through the garden to the bungalow. He began to chaff me in his kindly way. I believe he liked me. Jim was silent for a while. I know he liked me. That's what, that's what made it so hard. Such a splendid man. That morning he slipped his hand under my arm. He too was familiar with me. He burst into a short laugh and dropped his chin on his breast. Pah! When I remember how that mean little beast had been talking to me, he began suddenly in a vibrating voice. I couldn't bear to think of myself. I suppose you know. I nodded. More like a father, he cried, and his voice sank. I would have had to tell him. 
I couldn't let it go on, could I? Well, I murmured after waiting a while. I preferred to go, he said slowly. This thing must be buried. We could hear in the shop Blake upbraiding Eggstrom in an abusive, strained voice. They had been associated for many years, and every day from the moment the doors were opened to the last minute before closing, Blake, a little man with sleek jetty hair and unhappy beady eyes, could be heard rowing his partner incessantly with a sort of scathing and plaintive fury. The sound of that everlasting scolding was part of the place like the other fixtures. Even strangers would very soon come to disregard it completely, unless it be perhaps to mutter, nuisance, or to get up suddenly and shut the door of the parlor. Ekstrom himself, a raw-boned, heavy Scandinavian, with a busy manner and immense blonde whiskers, went on directing his people, checking parcels, making out bills, or writing letters at a stand-up desk in the shop, and comported himself in that clatter exactly as though he had been stone deaf. Now and then he would emit a bothered, perfunctory shh, which neither produced nor was expected to produce the slightest effect. They are very decent to me here, said Jim. Blake's a little cad, but Eggstrom's all right. He stood up quickly, and walking with measured steps to a tripod telescope standing in the window and pointed at the roadstead, he applied his eye to it. There's that ship which has been becalmed outside all the morning, has got a breeze now, and is coming in, he remarked patiently. I must go and board. We shook hands in silence, and he turned to go. Jim, I cried. He looked round with his hand on the lock. You, you have thrown away something like a fortune. He came back to me all the way from the door. Such a splendid old chap, he said. How could I? How could I? His lips twitched. Here, it does not matter. Oh, you, you, I began, and had to cast about for a suitable word, but before I became aware that there was no name that would just do, he was gone. I heard outside Eggstrom's deep, gentle voice saying cheerily, "'That's the Sarah W. Granger, Jimmy. You must manage to be first aboard.' And directly Blake struck in, screaming after the manner of an outraged cockatoo, "'Tell the captain we've got some of his mail here. That'll fetch him. Do you hear, Mr. What's-your-name?' And there was Jim answering Eggstrom with something boyish in his tone. "'All right. I'll make a race of it. He seemed to take refuge in the boat-sailing part of that sorry business. I did not see him again that trip, but on my next—I had a six-month's charter—I went up to the store. Ten yards away from the door, Blake's scolding met my ears, and when I came in, he gave me a glance of utter wretchedness. Eggstrom, all smiles advanced, extending a large bony hand. "'Glad to see you, Captain. Shh! Been thinking you were about due back here. What did you say, sir?' Shh! Oh, him! He has left us. Come into the parlor. After the slam of the door, Blake's strained voice became faint, as the voice of one scolding desperately in a wilderness. Put us to a great inconvenience, too. Used us badly, I must say. Where's he gone to? Do you know? I asked. No, it's no use asking, either, said Eggstrom, standing bewhiskered and obliging before me with his arms hanging down his sides clumsily and a thin silver watch-chain looped very low on a rucked-up blue serge waistcoat. A man like that don't go anywhere in particular. I was too concerned at the news to ask for the explanation of that pronouncement, and he went on. He left, let's see, the very day a steamer with returning pilgrims from the Red Sea put in here with two blades of her propeller gone, three weeks ago now. 
Wasn't there something said about the Patna case? I asked, fearing the worst. He gave a start and looked at me as if I had been a sorcerer. Why, yes. How do you know? Some of them were talking about it here. There was a captain or two, the manager of Van Lowe's engineering shop at the harbor, two or three others, and myself. Jim was in here, too, having a sandwich and a glass of beer. When we were busy, you see, Captain, there's no time for a proper tiffin. He was standing by this table eating sandwiches, and the rest of us were around the telescope watching that steamer come in. And by and by, Van Lowe's manager began to talk about the chief of Patna. He had done some repairs for him once, and from that he went on to tell us what an old ruin she was, and the money that had been made out of her. He came to mention her last voyage, and then we all struck in. Some said one thing, and some another. Not much. What you or any other man might say. And there was some laughing. Captain O'Brien of the Sarah W. Granger, a large, noisy old man with a stick, he was sitting listening to us in this armchair here. He let drive suddenly with a stick at the floor and roars out, Skunks! Made us all jump. Van Lowe's manager winks at us and asks, What's the matter, Captain O'Brien? Matter, matter, the old man began to shout. What are you engines laughing at? It's no laughing matter. It's a disgrace to human nature. That's what it is. I would despise being seen in the same room with one of those men. Yes, sir. He seemed to catch my eye like, and I had to speak out of civility. Skunks, says I. Of course, Captain O'Brien and I wouldn't care to have them here, so you're quite safe in this room, Captain O'Brien. Have a little something cool to drink. Damn your drink, Eggstrom, says he with a twinkle in his eye. When I want a drink, I will shout for it. I'm going to quit. It stinks here now. At this, the others burst out laughing, and out they go after the old man. And then, sir, that blasted Jim, he puts down the sandwich he had in his hand, walks around the table to me. There was his glass of beer poured out quite full. I am off, he says, just like this. It isn't half past one yet, says I. You might snatch a smoke first. I thought he meant it was time for him to go down to his work. When I understood what he was up to, my arms fell. So, can't get a man like that every day, you know, sir? Regular devil for sailing a boat, ready to go out miles to sea to meet ships in any sort of weather. More than once a captain would come in here full of it, and the first thing he would say would be, That's a reckless sort of lunatic you've got for a water clerk, Eggstrom. I was feeling my way in at daylight under short canvas, when there comes flying out of the mist right under my forefoot a boat half under water, sprays going over the masthead, too frightened on the bottom boards, a yelling fiend at the tiller. Hey, hey, ship ahoy, ahoy, captain, hey, hey, Eggstrom Blake's man first to speak to you. Hey, hey, Eggstrom Blake, hello, hey, whoop, kick the out reefs, a squall on at a time, shoots ahead, whooping and yelling to make me sail and he would give me a lead in. More like a demon than a man. Never saw a boat handled like that in all my life. Couldn't have been drunk, was he? Such a quiet, soft-spoken chap, too. Blushed like a girl when he came on board. I tell you, Captain Marlowe, nobody had a chance against us with that strange ship when Jim was out. The other ship chandlers just kept their old customers, and... Eggstrom appeared overcome with emotion. Why, sir, it seemed as though he wouldn't mind going a hundred miles out to sea in an old shoe to nab a ship for the firm. If the business had been his own and all to make yet, he couldn't have done more in that way. And now, all at once, like this, thinks I to myself, Aho, a rise in the screw, that's the trouble, is it? All right, says I. No need of all that fuss with me, Jimmy. Just mention your figure. Anything in reason. He looks at me as if he wanted to swallow something that stuck in his throat. I can't stop with you. 
What's the bloomin' joke? I asks. He shakes his head, and I could see in his eye he was as good as gone already, sir. So I turned to him and slanged him till all was blue. What is it you're running away from? I asks. Who has been getting at you? What scared you? You haven't as much sense as a rat. They don't clear out from a good ship. What do you expect to get a better berth? Where do you expect to get a better berth? You this and you that. I made him look sick, I can tell you. This business ain't going to sink, says I. He gave a big jump. Goodbye, he says, nodding at me like a lord. You ain't half a bad chap, Eggstrom. I give you my word that if you knew my reasons, you wouldn't care to keep me. That's the biggest lie you ever told in your life, says I. I know my own mind. He made me so mad that I had to laugh. Can't you really stop long enough to drink this glass of beer here, you funny beggar you? I don't know what came over him. He didn't seem able to find the door. Something comical, I can tell you, Captain. I drank the beer myself. Well, if you're in such a hurry, there's luck to you in your own drink, says I. Only you mark my words. If you keep up this game, you'll very soon find that the earth ain't big enough to hold you. That's all. He gave me one black look, and out he rushed with a face fit to scare little children. He gave me one black look, and out he rushed with a face fit to scare little children. Ekstrom snorted bitterly, and combed one auburn whisker with knotty fingers. Haven't been able to get a man that was any good since. It's nothing but worry, worry, worry in business. And where might you have come across him, Captain, if it's fair to ask? He was the mate of the patent of that voyage, I said feeling that I owed some explanation. For a time, Eggstrom remained very still, with his fingers plunged in the hair at the side of his face, and then exploded. And who the devil cares about that? I dare say no one, I began. And what the devil is he, anyhow, for to go on like this? He stuffed suddenly his left whisker into his mouth and stood amazed. Gee, he exclaimed. I told him the earth wouldn't be big enough to hold his caper. Chapter 19 I have told you these two episodes at length to show his manner of dealing with himself under the new conditions of his life. There were many others of the sort, more than I could count on the fingers of my two hands. They were all equally tinged by a high-minded absurdity of intention which made their futility profound and touching. To fling away your daily bread so as to get your hands free for a grapple with a ghost may be an act of prosaic heroism. Men had done it before, though we who have lived know full well that it is not the haunted soul but the hungry body that makes an outcast. And men who had eaten and meant to eat every day had applauded the creditable folly. He was indeed unfortunate, for all his recklessness could not carry him out from under the shadow. There is always a doubt of his courage. The truth seems to be that it is impossible to lay the ghost of a fact. You can face it or shirk it, and I have come across a man or two who could wink at their familiar shades. Obviously, Jim was not of the winking sort, but what I could never make up my mind about was whether his line of conduct amounted to shirking his ghost or to facing him out. I strained my mental eyesight only to discover that, as with the complexion of all our actions, the shade of difference was so delicate that it was impossible to say. It might have been flight, and it might have been a mode of combat. To the common mind, he became known as a rolling stone, because this was the funniest part. He did, after a time, become perfectly known, and even notorious, within the circle of his wanderings, which had a diameter of, say, 3,000 miles, in the same way as an eccentric character is known to a whole countryside. 
For instance, in Bangkok, where he found employment with Yucker Brothers, charterers and teak merchants, it was almost pathetic to see him go about in sunshine hugging his secret, which was known to the very upcountry logs on the river. Schomburg, the keeper of the hotel where he boarded, a hirsute Alsatian of manly bearing and an irrepressible retailer of all the scandalous gossip of the place, would, with both elbows on the table, impart an adorned version of the story to any guest who cared to imbibe knowledge along with the more costly liquors. And mind you, the nicest fellow you could meet, would be his generous conclusion, quite superior. It says a lot for the casual crowd that frequented Schomburg's establishment that Jim managed to hang out in Bangkok for a whole six months. I remarked that people, perfect strangers, took to him as one takes to a nice child. His manner was reserved, but it was as though his personal appearance, his hair, his eyes, his smile, made friends for him wherever he went. And of course, he was no fool. I heard Sigmund Rucker, native of Switzerland, a gentle creature ravaged by a cruel dyspepsia, and so frightfully lame that his head swung through a quarter of a circle at every step he took, declare appreciatively that for one so young, he was of great gabacity, as though it had been a mere question of cubic contents. Why not send him up country? I suggested anxiously. Yucker Brothers had concessions and teak forests in the interior. If he has capacity, as you say, he will soon get hold of the work, and physically he is very fit. His health is always excellent. Ah, it's a great thing in this country to be free from dyspepsia, sighed poor Yucker enviously, casting a stealthy glance at the pit of his ruined stomach. I left him drumming pensively on his desk and muttering, It's an idea. It's an idea. Unfortunately, that very evening an unpleasant affair took place in the hotel. I don't know that I blame Jim very much, but it was a truly regrettable incident. It belonged to the lamentable species of barroom scuffles, and the other party to it was a cross-eyed Dane of sorts, whose visiting card recited, under his misbegotten name, First Lieutenant of the Royal Siamese Navy. The fellow, of course, was utterly hopeless at billiards, but did not like to be beaten, I suppose. He had had enough to drink to turn nasty after the sixth game, and make some scornful remark at Jim's expense. Most of the people there didn't hear what he said, and those who had heard seemed to have had all precise recollections scared out of them by the appalling nature of the consequences that immediately ensued. It was very lucky for the Dane that he could swim, because the room opened on a veranda and the menum flowed below very wide and black. A boatload of Chinamen, bound as likely as not on some thieving expedition, fished out the officer of the King of Siam, and Jim turned up at about midnight on board my ship without a hat. Everybody in the room seemed to know, he said, gasping yet from the contest, as it were. He was rather sorry, on general principles, for what had happened, though in this case there had been, he said, no option. But what dismayed him was to find the nature of his burden as well known to everybody, as though he had gone about all that time carrying it on his shoulders. Naturally, after this he couldn't remain in the place. He was universally condemned for the brutal violence, so unbecoming a man in his delicate position. Some maintained he had been disgracefully drunk at the time. Others criticized his want of tact. Even Schomburg was very much annoyed. He is a very nice young man, he said argumentatively to me, but the lieutenant is a first-rate fellow, too. He dines every night at my table d'hote, you know. And there's a billiard cue broken. I can't allow that. 
First thing this morning, I went over with my apologies to the lieutenant, and I think I've made it all right for myself, but only think, Captain, if everybody started such games. Why, the man might have been drowned. And here, I can't run into the next street and buy a new queue. I've got to write to Europe for them. No, no, a temper like that won't do. He was extremely sore on the subject. This was the worst incident of all in his, his retreat. Nobody could deplore it more than myself. For if, as somebody said, hearing him mentioned, Oh, yes, I know. He has knocked about a good deal out here. Yet he had somehow avoided being battered and chipped in the process. This last affair, however, made me seriously uneasy, because if his exquisite sensibilities were to go the length of involving him in pothouse shindies, he would lose his name of an inoffensive, if aggravating, fool, and acquire that of a common loafer. For all my confidence in him, I could not help reflecting that in such cases from the name to the thing itself is but a step. I suppose you will understand that by that time I could not think of washing my hands of him. I took him away from Bangkok in my ship, and we had a longish passage. It was pitiful to see how he shrank within himself. A seaman, even a mere passenger, takes an interest in a ship, and looks at the sea life around him with the critical enjoyment of a painter, for instance, looking at another man's work. In every sense of the expression, he is on deck, but my Jim, for the most part, skulked down below as though he had been a stowaway. He infected me so that I avoided speaking on professional matters, such as would suggest themselves naturally to two sailors during a passage. For whole days we did not exchange a word. I felt extremely unwilling to give orders to my officers in his presence. Often, when alone with him on deck or in the cabin, we didn't know what to do with our eyes. I placed him with De Jong, as you know, glad enough to dispose of him in any way, yet persuaded that his position was now growing intolerable. He had lost some of that elasticity which had enabled him to rebound back into his uncompromising position after every overthrow. One day, coming ashore, I saw him standing on the quay, the water of the roadstead and the sea in the offing made one smooth ascending plain, and the outermost ships at anchor seemed to ride motionless in the sky. He was waiting for his boat, which was being loaded at our feet with packages of small stores for some vessel, ready to leave. After exchanging greetings, we remained silent, side by side. Jove, he said suddenly, this is killing work. He smiled at me. I must say he generally could manage a smile. I made no reply. I knew very well he was not alluding to his duties. He had an easy time of it with De Jong. Nevertheless, as soon as he had spoken, I became completely convinced that the work was killing. I did not even look at him. Would you like, said I, to leave this part of the world altogether, try California or the West Coast? I'll see what I can do. He interrupted me a little scornfully. What difference would it make? I felt at once convinced that he was right. It would make no difference. It was not relief he wanted. I seemed to perceive dimly that what he wanted— what he was, as it were, waiting for, was something not easy to define, something in the nature of an opportunity. I had given him many opportunities, but they had been merely opportunities to earn his bread. Yet what more could any man do? The position struck me as hopeless, and poor Briarly's saying recurred to me, let him creep twenty feet underground and stay there. Better that, I thought, than this waiting above ground for the impossible. Yet one could not be sure even of that. There and then, before his boat was three oars' length away from the quay, I had made up my mind to go and consult Stein in the evening. 
This Stein was a wealthy and respected merchant. His house, because it was a house, Stein and Co., and there was some sort of partner who, as Stein said, looked after the Moluccas, had a large inter-island business, with a lot of trading posts established in the most out-of-the-way places for collecting the produce. His wealth and his respectability were not exactly the reasons why I was anxious to seek his advice. I desired to confide my difficulty to him because he was one of the most trustworthy men I had ever known. The gentle light of a simple, unwearied, as it were, and intelligent good nature illumined his long, hairless face. It had deep downward folds, and was pale as of a man who had always led a sedentary life, which was indeed very far from being the case. His hair was thin and brushed back from a massive and lofty forehead. One fancied that at twenty he must have looked very much like what he was now at threescore. It was a student's face, only the eyebrows nearly all white, thick and bushy, together with the resolute searching glance that came from under them, were not in accord with his, I must say, learned appearance. He was tall and loose-jointed. His slight stoop, together with an innocent smile, made him appear benevolently ready to lend you his ear. His long arms with pale big hands had rare deliberate gestures of a pointing out, demonstrating kind. I speak of him at length because under this exterior and in conjunction with an upright and indulgent nature, this man possessed an intrepidity of spirit and a physical courage that could have been called reckless had it not been like a natural function of the body, say good digestion, for instance, completely unconscious of itself. It is sometimes said of a man that he carries his life in his hand. Such a saying would have been inadequate if applied to him. During my early part of his existence in the East, he had been playing ball with it. All this was in the past, but I knew the story of his life and the origin of his fortune. He was also a naturalist of some distinction, or perhaps I should say a learned collector. Entomology was his special study. His collection of buprestididae and longicorns, beetles all, horrible miniature monsters looking malevolent in death and immobility, and his cabinet of butterflies, beautiful and hovering under the glass of cases on lifeless wings, had spread his fame far over the earth. The name of this merchant, adventurer, sometimes adviser of a Malay sultan, to whom he never alluded other than as my poor Mohammed Bonso, had, on account of a few bushels of dead insects, become known to learned persons in Europe, who could have had no conception, and certainly would not have cared to know anything, of his life or character. I, who knew, considered him an eminently suitable person, to receive my confidences about Jim's difficulties as well as my own. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Hi, Anne. I'm great. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for being back with us. It is always a pleasure. So I understand you have another article for us. I do. We're going back to the Conradian again today for an article by Robert Hampson. Great. What is this one about? So this one is called A Passion for Maps, Conrad, Africa, Australia, and Southeast Asia. I know we do like our maps, so this sounds pretty interesting. Relevant to some members of our community. And this one is a little bit less explicitly about Lord Jim and more about some mentions of maps and their relevance to Conrad in general. But I thought that 
given the subject matter that this might be of interest. Yeah, so tell us a little something about what it has to say. Yeah, so um, the author starts with a description from Conrad himself about his fascination with maps and then walks us through some areas where that's relevant in some of his works. And there are a couple of mentions of Lord Jim in here, uh, I should say. So, you know, it does factor in a bit. Um, but Conrad apparently had a really um, long-standing interest in geography and cartography and in exploration and you know of course there's going to be a lot of discussion of heart of darkness in this article um but you know i like the quotes from conrad himself talking about how he felt exploring a map as a boy and you know that real fascination and his you know loving his atlas and um you know it, it's it's lovely that does sound really interesting. And it brings to mind that maps serve a number of different purposes for us. I'm sure that as a mariner, he was very interested in maps for navigation and just practical matters. They're a very practical instrument that are just essential. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do tend to pour over atlases. And I know I enjoy diving into Google Maps sometimes and just picking a place and seeing what that looks like. Um, and there is a way that maps from across many years have served as a way for us to interact with the world and imagine the world um, and imagine who's there and what they're up to, which is yes. really fun. Definitely. And I don't know, have you ever used our VR system to um, experience, you know, Google Earth from that perspective where you're you're just kind of flying over it and it's very immersive? I have. I've visited different apartments and, you know, knelt down to try and look through the window. I've traveled to North Korea in there, which is very flat in Google Earth. Um, but just to see what it would feel like to be there. Yes. Yeah, I, I did that. And of course, the first thing I do is go to the house where I grew up. But then, you know, you can just kind of look at the whole world if you want. And, um, you know, I, I also still love just, you know, looking at a globe or looking at a physical atlas, um, even though we do have a more, you know, immersive 3D opportunity to look at that now. Um, yeah, well, and it reminds me too, um, you know, some of the, there's still a lot of current conversation about maps and how important they are and, mm -hmm. you know, which projection you're using, which depends a lot on what your purpose is, whether it's for navigation, where you like those straight lines, um, and, or if it's for understanding kind of the social implications or sizes of different places relative to one another, you know, there's, you make choices about what maps you use depending on what your purpose is. Yes, certainly. So, um, so yeah, you know, th this article is, again, um, I think it says a number of interesting things. Um, it does, you know, in the first few pages here, we have a quote from Heart of Darkness, and this is Marlowe, who, of course, you know, he's involved in Lord Jim. So if we're talking about Marlowe, that's, that's relevant to our novel as well. Um, and he talks about having a passion for maps as a small child and losing himself, spending hours looking at, you know, maps of other places. And he makes a reference to blank spaces on the earth. And so that's a really interesting way. And, you know, we're talking about a time when we didn't have a complete cartographic understanding of the entire planet. Um, and, you know, 
the author of this article talks about, um, I'm just going to quote directly, he says, one of the interesting things in this passage is the way in which Marlowe equates the map and the place. There are not just blanks on the map, there are blank spaces on the earth. In his mind, it is as if places did not exist until mapped by Europeans. So, you know, this is a really problematic way of thinking. Um, he also is recalling being a small child and thinking that. Um, but, you know, the author talks about the significance of that and the fact that, you know, obviously these are things that were locally known um, and very much well understood by the people in those places. Uh, but there's a little bit here about the history of map making and, you know, how all of these things relate to the developing understanding of the world at that time that I think uh, just uh, potentially of real interest. Yeah, that does sound interesting. And, you know, I've noticed that there are still places on the map, even in Google Maps or other, you know, really detailed maps that are available to us. There are regions where a lot of things don't show up. And I know that there are people there there are towns there, um, but they might be quite small or pretty isolated from other people. So we're still seeing kind of a lack of detail in the spots where the people making the maps just don't know all that much about that area. Um, and that might make it seem like it is actually empty, that there is nothing there. So I hope that our listeners enjoy this one. Uh, there are actually, you know, several articles out there about maps in relation to Conrad's writing and, uh, you know, geography. So we might touch on some of those in the future. Fantastic. Well, I really look forward to it. And thank you for bringing us something that kind of expands our view a little bit out from Lord Jim, but I think will really help uh, inform some of that reading as well. Thanks for the opportunity. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 20 Late in the evening I entered his study after traversing an imposing but empty dining room very dimly lit. The house was silent. I was preceded by an elderly grim Javanese servant in a sort of livery of white jacket and yellow sarong, who, after throwing the door open, exclaimed low, Oh, master, and stepping aside, vanished in a mysterious way as though he had been a ghost only momentarily embodied for that particular service. Stein turned round with the chair, and in the same movement his spectacle seemed to get pushed up on his forehead. He welcomed me in his quiet and humorous voice. Only one corner of the vast room, the corner in which stood his writing desk, was strongly lighted by a shaded reading lamp, and the rest of the spacious apartment melted into shapeless gloom like a cavern. Narrow shelves filled with dark boxes of uniform shape and color ran round the walls, not from floor to ceiling, but in a somber belt about four feet broad. Catacombs of beetles. Wooden tablets were hung above at irregular intervals. The light reached one of them, and the word Coleoptera, written in gold letters, glittered mysteriously upon the vast dimness. The glass cases containing the collection of butterflies were ranged in three long rows upon slender-legged little tables. One of these cases had been removed from its place and stood on the desk, which was bestrewn with oblong slips of paper blackened with minute handwriting. So you see me, so, he said. His hand hovered over the case where a butterfly in solitary grandeur spread out dark bronze wings, seven inches or more across, 
with exquisite white veinings and a gorgeous border of yellow spots. Only one specimen like this they have in your London, and then no more. To my small native town, this my collection I shall bequeath, something of me, the best. He bent forward in the chair and gazed intently, his chin over the front of the case. I stood at his back. Marvelous, he whispered, and seemed to forget my presence. His history was curious. He had been born in Bavaria, and when a youth of twenty-two had taken an active part in the revolutionary movement of 1848. Heavily compromised, he managed to make his escape, and at first found a refuge with a poor Republican watchmaker in Trieste. From there he made his way to Tripoli with a stock of cheap watches to hawk about. Not a very great opening, truly, but it turned out lucky enough, because it was there that he came upon a Dutch traveler, a rather famous man, I believe, but I don't remember his name. It was that naturalist who, engaging him as a sort of assistant, took him to the east. They traveled in the archipelago together, and separately, collecting insects and birds for four years or more. Then the naturalist went home, and Stein, having no home to go to, remained with an old trader he had come across in his journeys, in the interior of Celebes, if Celebes may be said to have an interior. This old Scotsman, the only white man allowed to reside in the country at the time, was a privileged friend of the chief ruler of Wajo States, who was a woman. I often heard Stein relate how that chap, who was slightly paralyzed on one side, had introduced him to the native court a short time before another stroke carried him off. He was a heavy man with a patriarchal white beard and of imposing stature. He came into the council hall where all the rajas, pangarans, and headmen were assembled with the queen. A fat, wrinkled woman, very free in her speech, Stein said, reclining on a high couch under a canopy. He dragged his leg, thumping with his stick, and grasped Stein's arm, leading him right up to the couch. Look, queen and you rajas, this is my son, he proclaimed in a stentorian voice. I have traded with your fathers, and when I die he shall trade with you and your sons. By means of this simple formality, Stein inherited the Scotsman's privileged position and all his stock in trade together with a fortified house on the banks of the only navigable river in the country. Shortly afterwards, the old queen, who was so free in her speech, died, and the country became disturbed by various pretenders to the throne. Stein joined the party of a younger son, the one of whom thirty years later he never spoke otherwise but as my poor Mohammed Bonso. They both became the heroes of innumerable exploits. They had wonderful adventures and once stood a siege in the Scotsman's house for a month, with only a score of followers against a whole army. I believe the natives talk of that war to this day. Meantime, it seems, Stein never failed to annex on his own account every butterfly or beetle he could lay hands on. After some eight years of war, negotiations, false truces, sudden outbreaks, reconciliation, treachery, and so on, and just as peace seemed at last permanently established, his poor Muhammad Bonso was assassinated at the gate of his own royal residence while dismounting in the highest spirits on his return from a successful deer hunt. This event rendered Stein's position extremely insecure, but he would have stayed perhaps had it not been that a short time afterwards he lost Muhammad's sister, my dear wife the princess, he used to say solemnly, by whom he had had a daughter, mother and child both dying within three days of each other from some infectious fever. He left the country, which this cruel loss had made unbearable to him. Thus ended the first and adventurous part of his existence. 
What followed was so different that, but for the reality of sorrow which remained with him, this strange part must have resembled a dream. He had a little money, he started life afresh, and in the course of years acquired a considerable fortune. At first he had travelled a good deal amongst the islands, but age had stolen upon him, and of late he seldom left his spacious house three miles out of town, with an extensive garden, and surrounded by stables, offices, and bamboo cottages for his servants and dependents, of whom he had many. He drove in his buggy every morning to town, where he had an office with white and Chinese clerks. He owned a small fleet of schooners and native craft, and dealt in island produce on a large scale. For the rest he lived solitary, but not misanthropic, with his books and his collection, classing and arranging specimens, corresponding with entomologists in Europe, writing up a descriptive catalogue of his treasures. Such was the history of the man whom I had come to consult upon Jim's case without any definite hope. Simply to hear what he would have to say would have been a relief. I was very anxious, but I respected the intense, almost passionate absorption with which he looked at a butterfly, as though on the bronze sheen of these frail wings, in the white tracings, in the gorgeous markings, he could see other things, an image of something as perishable and defying destruction as these delicate and lifeless tissues, displaying a splendor unmarred by death. Marvelous, he repeated, looking up at me. Look, the beauty, but that is nothing. Look at the accuracy, the harmony, and so fragile, and so strong, and so exact. This is nature, the balance of colossal forces. Every star is so, and every blade of grass stands so. And the mighty cosmos in perfect equilibrium produces this, this wonder, this masterpiece of nature, the great artist. Never heard an entomologist go on like this, I observed cheerfully. Masterpiece. And what of man? Man is amazing, but he is not a masterpiece, he said, keeping his eyes fixed on the glass case. Perhaps the artist was a little mad, eh? What do you think? Sometimes it seems to me that man is come where he is not wanted, where there is no place for him, for if not, why should he want all the place? Why should he run about here and there making a great noise about himself, talking about the stars, disturbing the blades of grass? Catching butterflies, I chimed in. He smiled, threw himself back in his chair, and stretched his legs. Sit down, he said. I captured this rare specimen myself one very fine morning, and I had a very big emotion. You don't know what it is for a collector to capture such a rare specimen. You can't know. I smiled at my ease in a rocking chair. His eyes seemed to look far beyond the wall at which they stared, and he narrated how, one night, a messenger arrived from his poor Muhammad, requiring his presence at the residence, as he called it, which was distant some nine or ten miles by a bridal path over a cultivated plain, with patches of forest here and there. Early in the morning he started from his fortified house, after embracing his little Emma, and leaving the princess, his wife, in command. He described how she came with him as far as the gate, walking with one hand on the neck of his horse. She had on a white jacket, gold pins in her hair, and a brown leather belt over her left shoulder with a revolver in it. She talked as women will talk, he said, telling me to be careful, and to try to get back before dark, and what a great wickedness it was for me to go alone. We were at war, and the country was not safe, my men were putting up bulletproof shutters to the house and loading their rifles, 
and she begged me to have no fear for her. She could defend the house against anybody till I returned, and I laughed with pleasure a little. I liked to see her so brave and young and strong. I too was young then. At the gate she caught hold of my hand and gave it one squeeze and fell back. I made my horse stand still outside till I heard the bars of the gate put up behind me. There was a great enemy of mine, a great noble and a great rascal, too, roaming with a band in the neighborhood. I cantered for four or five miles. There had been rain in the night, but the musts had gone up, up, and the face of the earth was clean. It lay smiling to me, so fresh and innocent, like a little child. Suddenly, somebody fires a volley, twenty shots at least, it seemed to me. I hear bullets sing in my ear and my hat jumps to the back of my head. It was a little intrigue, you understand. They got my poor Mohammed to send for me and then laid that ambush. I see it all in a minute, and I think, this wants a little management. My pony snort, jump, and stand, and I fall slowly forward with my head on his mane. He begins to walk, and with one eye I could see over his neck a faint cloud of smoke hanging in front of a clump of bamboos to my left. I think, aha, my friends, why you not wait long enough before you shoot? This is not yet Golongan. Oh no, I get hold of my revolver with my right hand, quiet, quiet. After all, there were only seven of these rascals. They get up from the grass and start running with their sarongs tucked up, waving spears above their heads, and yelling to each other to look out and catch the horse, because I was dead. I let them come as close as the door here, and then bang, 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 take aim each time, too. One more shot I fire at a man's back, but I miss, too far already. And then I sit alone on my horse, with the clean earth smiling at me, and there are bodies of three men lying on the ground. One was curled up like a dog. Another on his back had an arm over his eyes as if to keep off the sun, and the third man, he draws up his leg very slowly and makes it with one kick straight again. I watch him very carefully from my horse, but there is no more. Blagans Roy, keep still, so. And as I looked at his face for some sign of life, I observed something like a faint shadow pass over his forehead. It was the shadow of this butterfly. Look at the form of the wing. This species fly high with a strong flight. I raised my eyes and I saw him fluttering away. I think, can it be possible? And then I lost him. I dismounted and went on very slow, leading my horse and holding my revolver with one hand and my eyes darting up and down and right and left, everywhere. At last I saw him sitting on a small heap of dirt ten feet away. At once my heart began to beat quick. I let go my horse, keep my revolver in one hand, and with the other snatched my soft felt hat off my head. One step, steady. Another step, flop. I got him. When I got up, I shook like a leaf with excitement, and when I opened these beautiful wings and made sure what a rare and so extraordinary perfect specimen I had, my head went round and my legs became so weak with emotion that I had to sit on the ground. I had greatly desired to possess myself of a specimen of that species when collecting for the professor. I took long journeys and underwent great privations. I had dreamed of him in my sleep, and here suddenly I had him in my fingers, for myself. In the words of the poet, he pronounced it Boet. He gave to the last word the emphasis of a suddenly lowered voice, and withdrew his eyes slowly from my face. He began to charge a long-stemmed pipe busily and in silence, then, 
pausing with his thumb on the orifice of the bowl, looking again at me significantly. Yes, my good friend, on that day I had nothing to desire. I had greatly annoyed my principal enemy. I was young, strong, I had friendship, I had the love, he said Loth, of woman, a child I had, to make my heart very full. And even what I had once dreamed in my sleep had come into my hand, too. He struck a match which flared violently. His thoughtful, placid face twitched once. Friend, wife, child, he said slowly, gazing at the small flame. Phew! The match was blown out. He sighed and turned again to the glass case. The frail and beautiful wings quivered faintly, as if his breath had for an instant called back to life that gorgeous object of his dreams. The work, he began suddenly, pointing to the scattered slips and in his usual gentle and cheery tone, is making great progress. I have been this rare specimen describing. Nah, and what is your good news? To tell you the truth, Stein, I said, with an effort that surprised me, I came here to describe a specimen. Butterfly? he asked, with an unbelieving and humorous eagerness. Nothing so perfect, I answered, feeling suddenly dispirited with all sorts of doubts. A man. Ah, so, he murmured, and his smiling countenance turned to me, became grave. Then, after looking at me for a while, he said slowly, Well, I am a man, too. Here you have him as he was, he knew how to be so generously encouraging as to make a scrupulous man hesitate on the brink of confidence, but if I did hesitate, it was not for long. He heard me out, sitting with crossed legs. Sometimes his head would disappear completely in a great eruption of smoke, and a sympathetic growl would come out from the cloud. When I finished, he uncrossed his legs, laid down his pipe, leaned forward towards me earnestly with his elbows on the arms of his chair, the tips of his fingers together. I understand very well. He is romantic. He had diagnosed the case for me, and at first I was quite startled to find how simple it was, and indeed our conference resembled so much a medical consultation. Stein, of learned aspect, sitting in an armchair before his desk, I, anxious, and another facing him but a little to one side, and it seemed natural to ask, what's good for it? He lifted up a long forefinger. There is only one remedy. One thing alone can us from being ourselves cure. The finger came down on the desk with a smart rap. The case which he had made to look so simple before became, if possible, still simpler and altogether hopeless. There was a pause. Yes, said I. Strictly speaking, the question is not how to get cured, but how to live. He approved with his head, a little sadly as it seemed. Yeah, yeah. In general, adapting the words of your great poet, that is the question. He went on nodding sympathetically. How to be. Ah, how to be. He stood up with the tips of his fingers resting on the desk. We want in so many different ways to be, he began again. This magnificent butterfly finds a little heap of dirt and sits still on it. But man, he will never on his heap of mud keep still. He want to be so, and again he want to be so. He moved his hand up, then down. He wants to be a saint, and he wants to be a devil. And every time he shuts his eyes, he sees himself as a very fine fellow, so fine as he can never be, in a dream. He lowered the glass lid, the automatic lock clicked sharply, and taking up the case in both hands, he bore it religiously away to its place, 
passing out of the bright circle of the lamp into the ring of fainter light, into shapeless dusk at last. It had an odd effect, as if these few steps had carried him out of this concrete and perplexed world. His tall form, as though robbed of its substance, hovered noiselessly over invisible things with stooping and indefinite movements. His voice, heard in that remoteness where he could be glimpsed mysteriously, busy with immaterial cares, was no longer incisive, seemed to roll voluminous and grave, mellowed by distance. And because you not always can keep your eyes shut, there comes the real trouble, the heart pain, the world pain. I tell you, my friend, it is not good for you to find you cannot make your dream come true for the reason that you not strong enough are or not clever enough. Yeah, and all the time you are such a fine fellow too. V? Was? Got him himmel. How can that be? Ha ha ha. The shadow prowling against the graves of butterflies laughed boisterously. Yes, very funny this terrible thing is. A man that is born falls into a dream like a man who falls into the sea. If he tries to climb out into the air as inexperienced people endeavor to do, he drowns. Niktvar? No, I tell you. The way is to the destructive element submit yourself, and with the exertions of your hands and feet in the water, make the deep, deep sea keep you up. So if you ask me how to be? His voice leaped up extraordinarily strong, as though away there in the dusk he had been inspired by some whisper of knowledge. I will tell you, for that too there is only one way. With a hasty swish-swish of his slippers he loomed up in the ring of faint light and suddenly appeared in the bright circle of the lamp. His extended hand aimed at my breast like a pistol. His deep-set eyes seemed to pierce through me, but his twitching lips uttered no word, and the austere exaltation of a certitude seen in the dusk vanished from his face. The hand that had been pointing at my breast fell, and by and by, coming a step nearer, he laid it gently on my shoulder. There were things, he said mournfully, that perhaps could never be told. Only he had lived so much alone that sometimes he forgot. He forgot. The light had destroyed the assurance which had inspired him in the distant shadows. He sat down and, with both elbows on the desk, rubbed his forehead. And yet it is true, it is true, in the destructive element immerse. He spoke in a subdued tone without looking at me, one hand on each side of his face. That was the way, to follow the dream and again to follow the dream. And so, yug, usque ad finem. The whisper of his conviction seemed to open before me a vast and uncertain expanse, as of a crepuscular horizon on a plain at dawn. Or was it, perchance, at the coming of the night? One had not the courage to decide, but it was a charming and deceptive light, throwing the impalpable poesy of its dimness over pitfalls, over graves. His life had begun in sacrifice, in enthusiasm for generous ideas. He had traveled very far, on various ways, on strange paths, and whatever he followed, it had been without faltering, and therefore without shame and without regret. Insofar, he was right. That was the way, no doubt. Yet for all that, the great plain on which men wander amongst graves and pitfalls remained very desolate under the impalpable poesy of its crepuscular light, overshadowed in the center, circled with a bright edge as if surrounded by an abyss full of flames. When at last I broke the silence, it was to express the opinion that no one could be more romantic than himself. 
He shook his head slowly, and afterwards looked at me with a patient and inquiring glance. It was the shame, he said. There we were, sitting and talking like two boys, instead of putting our heads together to find something practical, a practical remedy for the evil, for the great evil, he repeated, with a humorous and indulgent smile. For all that, our talk did not grow more practical. We avoided pronouncing Jim's name as though we had tried to keep flesh and blood out of our discussion, or he were nothing but an erring spirit, a suffering and nameless shade. Nah, said Stein, rising. Tonight you sleep here, and in the morning we shall do something practical. Practical. He lit a two-branched candlestick and led the way. We passed through dark, empty rooms, escorted by gleams from the lights Stein carried. They glided along waxed floors, sweeping here and there over the polished surface of a table, leaped upon a fragmentary curve of a piece of furniture, or flashed perpendicularly in and out of distant mirrors, while the forms of two men and the flicker of two flames could be seen for a moment stealing silently across the depths of a crystalline void. He walked slowly, a pace in advance without stooping courtesy. There was a profound, as it were a listening, quietude on his face. The long flaxen locks mixed with white threads were scattered thinly upon his slightly bowed neck. He is romantic, romantic, he repeated, and that is very bad, very bad. Very good, too, he added. But is he? I queried. Gavis, he said, and stood still holding up the candelabrum, but without looking at me. Evident. What is it that by inward pain makes him know himself? What is it that for you and me makes him exist? At that moment it was difficult to believe in Jim's existence, starting from a country parsonage blurred by crowds of men as by clouds of dust, silenced by the clashing claims of life and death in a material world. But his imperishable reality came to me with a convincing, with an irresistible force. I saw it vividly, as though in our progress through the lofty silent rooms amongst fleeting gleams of light and the sudden revelations of human figures stealing with flickering flames within unfathomable and pellucid depths, we had approached nearer the absolute truth, which, like beauty itself, floats elusive, obscure, half-submerged in the silent still waters of mystery. Perhaps he is, I admitted with a slight laugh, whose unexpectedly loud reverberation made me lower my voice directly. But I am sure you are. With his head dropping on his breast and the light held high, he began to walk again. Well, I exist too, he said. He preceded me. My eyes followed his movements, but what I did see was not the head of the firm, the welcome guest at afternoon receptions, the correspondent of learned societies, the entertainer of stray naturalists. I saw only the reality of his destiny, which he had known how to follow with unfaltering footsteps, that life begun in humble surroundings, rich in generous enthusiasms, in friendship, love, war, in all the exalted elements of romance. At the door of my room, he faced me. Yes, I said, as though carrying on a discussion, and amongst other things, you dreamed foolishly of a certain butterfly. But when one fine morning your dream came in your way, you did not let the splendid opportunity escape, did you? Where is he? Stein lifted his hand. And do you know how many opportunities I let escape? How many dreams I had lost that had come in my way? He shook his head regretfully. 
It seems to me that some would have been very fine if I had made them come true. Do you know how many? Perhaps I myself don't know. Whether his were fine or not, I said, he knows of one which he certainly did not catch. Everybody knows of one or two like that, said Stein, and that is the trouble, the great trouble. He shook hands on the threshold, peered into my room under his raised arm. Sleep well, and tomorrow we must do something practical, practical. Though his own room was beyond mine, I saw him return the way he came. He was going back to his butterflies. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.